0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host,
1: Pete Mekaitis.
0: Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for Episode 302 with Bruce Tolgan. Bruce really speaks from a rich depth of experience when it comes to what is up with management today and what needs to happen. So you'll learn one, why and how to avoid managing on autopilot, two, the central importance of regular one-on-one meetings, and three, how to use the manager's landscape tool. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F302. Now here's Bruce's story. Bruce Tolgan is internationally recognized as the leading expert on young people in the workplace and one of the leading experts on leadership and management in general. Bruce is a best-selling author, an advisor to business leaders all over the world, and a sought-after keynote speaker and management trainer. Bruce has spent decades working with tens of thousands of leaders and managers in hundreds of organizations ranging from Aetna to Walmart to the U.S. Army. Bruce has received Toastmasters International's most prestigious honor, the Golden Gavel. He's written numerous books, and his writing has also appeared in dozens of magazines and newspapers, such as the Harvard Business Review, Business Week, HR Magazine, The New York Times, The LA Times, and USA Today. So thanks to Bruce for sharing his time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check him out. No. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a 1 billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number 1 in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedincom awesome. That's linkedin.com/b e a w e s o m e as in you are being awesome, be awesome to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply here is Bruce. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
1: Thanks so much for including me.
0: Well, first, I want to hear all about you have a sixth degree black belt in Ru, if I said that right, uh, karate style. And I'm so intrigued by this on a couple dimensions. First of all, the degrees. More degrees is harder and takes longer, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been studying karate for 44 years since I was seven years old. And um, in our style, sixth degree is a master so i had to go to okinawa to be promoted to that level and uh but i've studied for since i was a little boy and in fact my lifelong teacher since i was a, a young uh child he now has come here uh to live with us so next door to my home is my office and my dojo uh, and my <laughs> lifelong and my lifelong teacher uh lives with us now
0: that is really cool that's really cool and so i'm intrigued then with um weichi ru is that distinctive from other karate styles and in what way?
1: Oh, well, it's an all uh, karate uh, comes from Okinawa, which is, you know, was the Ruyu kingdom and was annexed by Japan in 1879. And uh, it's kind of a nexus of, of Japanese and Chinese influence in Okinawa. But our style is very hard style. It's um, half hard, half soft is what it comes from originally. And um, it's uh, based on conditioning the body and practicing kata, which are prearranged series of techniques, and fighting. And uh, that's true of all classical karate practice. So our style is very effective style. It's, um, it's upright. And it uh, mixes the movements of the tiger, the dragon, and the crane. And uh, it's a lifelong passion of mine.
0: That's cool. That's cool. And so, is there any overlap between your interest in, I'm going to try to pronounce it the way you pronounced it karate? Did I say that right? I, I always call it yeah, karate. I, mean, I feel so America's,
1: American. <laughs> American say karate. Karate. You know, <laughs> But kara means empty or Chinese. It means both things. And te means hand. And do means way. So karate do means the way of the Chinese hand or the way of the empty hand.
0: Okay, I'm with you. Well, well, so is there some overlap (laughs) there from that, I guess, mindset or way and your company Rainmaker thinking?
1: Well, karate influences everything in my life. Because I've been doing it since I was seven years old. So it's uh, an art of the mind and the body and the spirit. And uh, it, it certainly it influences everything I do. I mean, uh, I've learned from karate that the fundamentals are the most important. No matter what you're doing, the fundamentals are what it's all about. I've learned that simple doesn't necessarily mean easy. But simple is often what you need, and simple can be pretty darn hard. And I've learned that practice, 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 practice is the way you get good at anything. And I think half hard, half soft, which is what our style comes from, Those principles work uh, in everything. It's yin, yang. It's also, you know, much of what we teach in our management uh, seminars is accountability and flexibility go hand in hand. So that's kind of a nice analog to hard and soft accountability and flexibility.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well and, and so your company has done uh, a number of interesting studies uh, long long term you know over many years uh you know not quite as many years as you've been doing karate but
1: uh <laughs> <laughs> but like since the 90s right yeah, we started doing this research in 1993. I was a young, unhappy lawyer at the time, and I began uh, interviewing young people, people my age, about their experiences in the workplace, and that, uh, those first interviews turned into my first book which was managing Generation X, which finally came out in 1995. And we've been continuing the research ever since. Uh, So now more than a half million people have participated in our longitudinal interviews and uh, from 400 different organizations. And Tens of thousands of those interviews lasted 10 years or longer. So we've been tracking these issues, generational change in the workplace, human capital management and uh, leadership and management best practices. We've been tracking these issues uh, since 1993.
0: Well, I'd love it if you could share sort of a key insight that has high applicability from some of these studies.
1: Well, our generational shift research is where we're tracking generational change in the workplace. And, of course, demographers have been talking about this great generational shift that's going to happen for a long time. Now it's actually happening. You know, the the age bubble on one end of the spectrum is growing as the baby boomers Uh, continue to age every single day. In North America alone, uh, Eight to 10,000 baby boomers turn 65, and they're filling up the age bubble on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, the fastest-growing segment of the workforce is made up of those born 1990 and later. By 2020, those born 1990 and later will be 28% of the workforce. And by 2020, the baby boomers will be well under 20% of the workforce. So this has implications for staffing strategy, attraction, selection, onboarding, up-to-speed training, performance management, rewards, incentives, retention, knowledge transfer, succession planning, leadership development. All of these issues are affected uh, by the shift in the demographics. And of course, it's not just numbers that are changing, but also the mindset of the workforce is changing. Uh, Everyone's talking about the millennials, especially the second wave millennials, the youngest, least experienced people in the workplace, those born 1990 and later. And uh, what our research shows is that uh, they are like the canaries in the coal mine. You know, the, the young emerging workforce uh, they think short-term and transactional. They want to know, what do you want from me today, tomorrow, and this week? What do you have to offer me today, tomorrow, and this week? Uh, they do not want everything on a silver platter. That's a lie or a misunderstanding. They don't want to be humored at work. That's nonsense. They want to be taken seriously, uh, and they want to know, what do I need to do every day to earn the rewards and flexibility that I need, and so I think that's where we're all headed. Uh, what we learn from our generational shift research is, as the numbers shift, we're all headed in that same direction. We're, people of all ages, uh, you know, we're all millennials now.
0: And so, now when you say the canary in the coal mine, you know, I get that metaphor suggests a warning of of danger and and changes that need to be made. Can you expand upon that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, any organization that's still uh, trying to recruit people by, hey, come, welcome to the family, pay your dues, climb the ladder, and in the long run, the system will take care of you. So we expect you to make lots of short-term sacrifices in exchange for vague promises about long-term rewards that may or may not vest in the deep, distant future. That's from the workplace of the past. That doesn't work anymore.
0: It's so funny, as, as you describe that, I mean, I was immediately like, no, no way, to, don't believe you. Because I mean, you know, downsizing layoffs, it happens all the time. And, and I don't know where, where it got baked into me. But I remember even in college, I thought I could not depend on any employer long-term for anything. Therefore, I'm going to assemble an unbeatable, indispensable set of skills that make me valuable anywhere and everywhere. And that's one of the main reasons I chose to start a career in in strategy consulting. And so it seems like I'm not the only one who figured that out. You know, this is pretty widespread that uh, this uh, vague promises of future rewards ain't ain't cutting in for folks.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, so that's a big uh, part of it. And I think that employers, they know on one level that job security is dead, that people have to take responsibility for their own success, uh, but then they can't figure out how to drive performance and retain the best people, a lot of organizations are having a hard time figuring that out. And the reason is because even though everything's changing, they're still operating the same on, on the same assumptions. So organizations need to adapt. Uh, they need to realize that in a, in a highly uncertain environment, people are going to think short-term and transactional. That doesn't mean you can't retain people for the long term, but it does mean you're going to have to do that in a much more granular, high maintenance way. And So I think when people point to the the youngest, least experienced people, the second wave millennials, and talk about, you know, they're so high maintenance, I think that's true. But I think people of all ages are becoming more high maintenance because uh, if you can't trust the system to take care of you in the long term, you look to your immediate boss to take care of you in the short term, and that's high maintenance. And so it's not that people are not willing to uh, do a lot of grunt work very well, very fast all day long. They just want to know, okay, then how, <laughs> how are you going to make the quid pro quo explicit every step of the way? How do I score enough points around here today, tomorrow, this week, this month, this year to earn more of what I need and want to take care of myself and my family? And as you say, career security no longer lies in an organization chart, but it lies in the marketable skills you're able to build up in yourself your ability to add value, your ability to collect proof of your ability to add value, the relationships you build with decision makers who know you can add value. That's where career security lies nowadays, I think, more and more. And we see this in greatest relief among the youngest people because they've never known it any other way. So older, more experienced people maybe are having to adapt to this free agent mindset, uh, but the youngest, least experienced people have never known it any other way.
0: You got to be like Liam Neeson with a particular set of skills, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. whether you're going to take down a bunch of uh, kidnappers or, or have career security. So I'm right with you there. And, and so, well, I, I got turned on to your work through Christopherio on the show earlier, and he was raving about your book. It's okay to be the boss. And I two became quite intrigued as I dug into it a little bit. And so could you share a little bit with us there? Sort of what's the main idea behind this book? And why do you think it's Really just connecting with folks and, and striking a chord here. Yeah,
1: well, that book, It's Okay to Be the Boss, comes out of another line of our research, uh, our research on leadership and management best practices and the experiences that leaders and managers are having every day. And we've been tracking under management is what we call it. It's the opposite of micromanagement. We've been tracking what we call the under management epidemic that so many leaders, managers, and supervisors in the real world, they're just not doing enough leading, managing, and supervising. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But when leaders are not highly engaged with their direct reports in today's environment, uh, things go wrong. And so the book, uh, It's Okay to Be the Boss, what I tried to do was share the research we've been doing on under-management. Uh, what is under-management? What, what is the state of practice when it comes to most leaders and managers? Uh, what does it look like? What's going right? What's going wrong? And when leaders and managers are not leading and managing in a sufficiently engaged way, why is that? Why is it that leaders have such a hard time on the front lines spending time in high structure, high substance dialogues, guiding, directing, supporting and coaching people. Why is it that managers have a hard time doing that? What's going wrong? What are the costs? And then what are the most effective managers doing differently? And that's what the book is about. It's eight steps back to the fundamentals of, of leadership. It's uh, get in the habit of managing people every day, uh, take it one person at a time, uh, learn to talk like a teacher or a coach make accountability a process not a slogan uh, spell out expectations every step of the way track performance every step of the way solve small problems before they turn into big problems and reward people extra when they go the extra mile that's the basic thrust of the book and i think it's hitting a chord because i think a lot of leaders and managers feel like it's getting harder and harder and harder to manage people and they they're sort of looking out in the world of, uh, management experts and leadership books. And, you know, a lot of those leadership books and management books are telling them a a lot of formulas that don't really work. And my book has the virtue of, it's not the flavor of the month. It's just the old fashioned basics.
0: Okay. Well, so then let's talk a little bit about this, this under management crisis that's, that's there. So, can you paint a little bit of a, of a picture in terms of what does that look, sound, and feel like in practice? In terms of the state of of management, leadership, supervision, and and employees, that is all too common and and problematic right now. Well,
1: I think what most leaders and managers feel like they don't have enough time to provide a high structure, high substance coaching style, guidance, direction, support every day. They they feel like they don't have enough time. And if you really talk with managers as we do every day, what they'll tell you is, oh, I talk to my people every day. But what that looks like almost always is they touch base. Uh, you know, how's everything going? Is everything on track? Any problems I should know about? And then the problem is those questions tell you nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's just, a, and then and they interrupt each other all day long, right? So when something pops into somebody's head, they, they text their manager, they email their manager, they go look for their manager, they call the manager. When something pops into the manager's head, They go look for the person or they text them or they email them or they call them. We call that management by interruption. The problem is nobody's at their best when they're interrupting. And then we see each other on email. We see each other in meetings. And if you take those four elements, touching base, interrupting, email, and meetings, that is what makes managers think they're managing because they're spending a lot of time communicating. It's just that it's it's not very effective communication. It's not time effective and it's not effective in terms of getting into the details. So what happens is managers feel like they're managing and we call that managing on autopilot, touching base, interrupting email, monitoring and meetings. And what happens is problems hide below the radar. And then every so often a problem blows up and everyone jumps into firefighting mode right and then it's roll up your sleeves all hands on deck and boy is that time consuming it's a whole lot harder to to put out a fire and salvage the wreckage uh, than it is to prevent a fire so w- this is what we call the vicious cycle of under management and it's why so many leaders say well while well, I'm already talking to my people but what they're not doing is creating a structured dialogue where they spell out expectations where they make sure people know exactly what's expected of them, what are you doing, how are you doing it, what steps are you going to follow, show me your plan. They track performance in writing and troubleshoot, problem-solve, resource plan, hold people accountable, and provide recognition when people go the extra mile. That's what's not happening. In 9 out of 10 management relationships, 9 out of 10 managers are not providing a regular structured dialogue where they make expectations clear, track performance, problem solve, troubleshoot resource plan, and hold people accountable and provide recognition and reward when people go the extra mile. Nine out of 10 management relationships, that's not happening. And that's what we call under management. And there are eight business costs. Problems occur that never had to occur. Problems get out of control that could have been solved easily. Resources are squandered. People go in the wrong direction for days, weeks, or months without realizing it. Low performers hide out and collect paychecks. Mediocre performers mistake themselves for high performers. High performers get frustrated and think about leaving. And managers end up doing tasks, responsibilities, and projects that should have been delegated to someone else or sometimes were delegated to someone else they just come back to the manager so this is what under management looks like all right and it's 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 the elephant in the room in most workplaces it's it's a problem that hides in plain sight
0: yeah well that is quite a picture thank you and 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 it's spooky and and it resonates and and it's real and so well i guess i'm wondering then it sounds like you are asserting that if you spent some time up front engaging in these structured dialogues and having less of the interruption stuff, you, you would in fact come out ahead in terms of of time t- turning into great output. Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. So it's not that managers don't spend a lot of time managing already. They just don't put their management time in the right place and they don't use it in a... A sufficiently effective way. So one way to think about it is think about all the time that people spend firefighting. Remember Smokey the Bear. Uh, Smokey oh, yeah. the Bear used to say, "It's a whole lot easier to prevent a forest fire than it is to put one out." And Smokey was one smart bear. You know that's and and so in many ways the the discipline we teach is managing upfront in advance before anything goes right, wrong, or average. It's fire prevention. Or if you like Stephen Covey, you know, it's it's quadrant two management. It's putting leadership and management up front and making it easier for people to go in the right direction in the first place so you don't have to spend a whole bunch of time solving problems that never should have happened.
0: So the, the important but not urgent quadrant there.
1: Exactly. You know, it's like, take, you know, in many ways, good management, it's like taking a walk every day and eating your vegetables. It's it's simple but it's it's it requires discipline and focus and you got to you got to build those habits.
0: So when you talk about having a structured dialogue you know, what does that look like in practice? You know, what are some some rituals the the equivalent of the taking the walks and eating the vegetables that that should just be happening in these sort of like one-on-ones scheduled at recurring times or or how does that look like in practice?
1: Yes, so it's team meetings but only for what team meetings meetings are good for, right? Uh, And then one-on-one is where all the action is. And the reason for structure, so look, maybe it's the same time, Tuesdays at 10, Right. Maybe it's every day at 10 or maybe uh, your schedule is a moving target. So you can't do it at the same time every day or, or every week uh, so that at the end of each conversation you schedule the next one. But the, the, the key is to have structure. And, and the reason for structure is so that you as a leader know you're going to have this conversation. And me as an employee who relies on my leader as your direct report, I know it's going to happen too, so that I can prepare and you can prepare. The, the key to structure is um, instead of interrupting each other, we keep a running list because we know we're going to have that meeting. Now, of course, we should be able to talk informally over the, in between one-on-ones. Uh, and if the building's on fire, then we better interrupt each other. But so often we interrupt each other. Nobody's at their best when they're being interrupted. So often we interrupt each other when we really don't need to. The building's not on fire. And it's it works so much better if you keep a running list. And then before each one-on-one, uh, you, you prepare. Some leaders and managers, what they do is they have their direct reports, uh, send them a one-page a document before the one-on-one, maybe the day before with, uh, you know, what are your burning issues, uh, maybe status updates on ongoing tasks and responsibilities and projects, uh, burning issues, resource needs, questions, and other matters. And, and then the key is by preparing, you're going to make that dialogue so much more effective because you're preparing. The structure leads to the substance. And when it comes to the substance and structure, everybody's different. The dialogue you need to have with one employee may be very different from the dialogue you need to have with another. That's why one-on-one is where all the action is. You know, some people, uh, you need to go over their to-do list with them every day. Some people, mm-hmm. that would be ridiculous. Uh, you know, some people are self-starting high performers. The reason you meet with them is to make sure that you're helping them clear obstacles out of their way or uh, get them the resources they need or uh, help them navigate interdependency or, uh, or, or maybe you're trying to get ideas from them uh, because they're so good. The conversation you develop, with one person will be very different from the conversation you start developing with with another person. And so uh, the structure is key, but it might be every day for one person, every other day for another person, every other week for, for another person. And likewise, the substance will be different depending on what you need from that person and depending on what that person needs from you.
0: I, I like that a lot. And as one who really doesn't do well with interruptions, <laughs> not that I start screaming or anything, but, but it's so true. It's like, well, where was I? All that time re reconnecting to what I was doing before the interruption that that really does add up. And so I'm curious, then there's, there's time saving occurring with those sort of eight business costs avoided. And so, what kind of time investment are we talking about here in terms of daily or weekly or one hour or half an hour? Like, like kind of what, what are some the rough ranges that you're seeing? Well,
1: it depends on how many direct reports you have. I mean, look, the reality is there are some managers who have unwieldy spans of control. You know, if, you're, if you have 30 people reporting to you directly with no chain of command, uh, you know, best of luck. Um, <laughs> now, you st- you're still better off to have one-on-ones and maybe you have a 20-minute one-on-one with each person. You know, that means you could get to three in a day and that means you get to 15 in a week. That means you could get to all 30 in two weeks, and that still would be better than the random, unstructured, loosey-goosey, ad hoc, touching base, interrupting, and firefighting that most managers um, are addicted to. So Look, I say start with an hour a day. If you think you don't have time to manage people, set aside an hour a day. If you really think you don't have time, like no way, then set aside 90 minutes a day <laughs> because, you know, it's high leverage time. The, the less time you have, the more important it is to set aside time for guiding, directing, supporting, and coaching up front in advance while you still have a chance to prevent problems from happening.
0: Mm, that's good that's good all right well so then i'm intrigued by the the title of your book itself it's okay to be the boss i think some would say well of course it's okay to be the boss you know who thinks it's not okay to be the boss you know what specifically are you challenging there
1: well you know So many people, they don't want to be in charge or they feel like they don't know how. A lot of people want the status and the authority and the prestige and the rewards. They want the business card, but they don't want the burdens of being in charge of other people. They don't want the the actual day-to-day work uh, that comes from guiding, directing, and supporting and coaching people. So maybe they want the paycheck. Maybe they want the business card but in fact, they resist the interpersonal difficulties that sometimes come with having authority over someone else. Um, I mean, if you have authority in relation to someone else's career and livelihood, uh, that's powerful. And I say, do not take that power lightly. That That is a lot of responsibility, and it's not not to be taken lightly. On the other hand, you have to own your responsibility. You've got to, you know, you're someone else's boss. They go home at night after work and sit at the dinner table (laughs) and talk about their boss. They're talking about you. And uh, so it's okay to be the boss, but you better be good at it.
0: Okay. Well, and so I'd like to to get your take then in the realm of what you're describing uh, being a little bit more hands-on and planful. In these exchanges, what's the right way to think about the the empowerment versus micromanaging elements? And, and so, if it sounds like it's quite easy to to go too far in one direction or another, how do you how do you think about navigate those waters?
1: Well, my view is that micromanagement is a big red herring. When you know, micromanagement is the shield people use when they want to be left alone you're micromanaging me. Uh, nope, I'm just managing you. <laughs> Good news, we're also going to pay you. If this were an amusement park, there'd be a line outside the door and somebody would be selling tickets. <laughs> you know. Well, right. um, and by the way, micromanagement is also the excuse a lot of managers use when they don't want to do their job of managing. Oh, I wouldn't want to be a micromanager. But micromanagement is really quite rare. Real micromanagement, is too much direction and feedback for this person with this task at this time. How are you going to know how much direction and feedback this person needs with this task at this time if you're not in regular dialogue? So the way to calibrate is precisely to get in there and start talking about the work with this person. Until you're engaged in a regular, ongoing, structured dialogue with every person about his or her tasks, responsibilities, and projects, then how do you know how much direction and feedback this person needs? Right, And it's a moving target. Maybe I've been doing X, Y, and Z projects for a long time. So I I know how to do those. I don't need as much direction on that stuff. But what if I have a brand new responsibility? Well, then I'm going to need a lot more guidance and direction on the new responsibility for a while until I get up to speed on it. So I think a lot of there's a lot of false empowerment thinking out there. False empowerment is the way to empower people is to leave them alone. Well, what's Mm -hmm. empowering about that? False empowerment is sink or swim, reinvent the wheel, figure it out, do it however you think it should be done, even though it's probably not up to you. There's nothing empowering about that. Real empowerment is about setting people up for success. Real empowerment is about making sure people know exactly what's expected of them, giving them the resources they need, spelling it out, breaking it down so that uh, people know exactly how to succeed. Uh, That's real empowerment real empowerment takes hard work on the part of a manager so w- what i tell leaders is real empowerment is actually it's it's not so sexy it's the boring art of delegation is is real empowerment it's it's spelling out an area of responsibility for someone else making clear all the guidelines and parameters uh, establishing good timelines and following up at regular intervals. That's how you properly delegate. You know, it, it, some people think that delegation is giving away responsibility. Delegation is about giving away limited execution authority. So, delegation is not like putting your kid up for adoption, <laughs> right? <laughs> delegation is like hiring a babysitter.
0: Okay. Uh, that's, that's a nice metaphor. Thank you. I, I have a, a baby at home, our first oh, awe at, at the moment. So I'm, I'm right with you on that. And so then I'm curious that you mentioned that you can, when you do this, you can avoid folks kind of ha- hiding out and collecting a paycheck, the stowaways. And, and so I'm imagining that this would be tremendously effective at surfacing very quickly well, you're really kind of not doing anything. (laughs) Like I'm talking to you every week and I've looked at what it is you're working on and and it ain't much and it it hasn't been much week after week. uh, And I'm trying to ask you to do some extra things. You're not doing those things. I'm wondering that once you start engaging folks in this way, I I think that many workplaces will, will surface many such people in that boat, any pro tips for for handling that once you're in the thick of it? Yeah.
1: I mean, what I always tell managers is when they ask me, oh, well, how long should I tolerate a low performer? What I always say to managers is if you're not providing regular high structure, high substance guidance, direction, support, and coaching, uh, then you don't even know if you have a low performer working for you. Because if you think you have a low performer and you're not managing, then the first question you should be asking is, is it you or is it me? <laughs> you know, Because a lot of problems in the workplace can be avoided or solved relatively easily when managers start practicing the fundamentals. But if you're practicing the fundamentals of leadership, if you're every day, every other day, once a week, spelling out expectations, following up, following up, following up, breaking it down, spelling it out, breaking it down some more, if you're doing everything you can to set me up for success and to give me the the support I need, and when you come back to me and say, did you do it? And every time it's, nope, I didn't do it. Uh, Well, okay, let's talk twice a day. You come back in four hours. Did you do it? Nope. Okay, here's a checklist for the checklist for the checklist. You come back the next day. Did you do it? Nope. Well, how long does it take to figure out that, you know, I'm not doing the job? So, you know, managers often say to me, oh, the hardest thing is giving negative feedback. Oh, the hardest thing is, is letting somebody know when they haven't done as good a job as they think they have. Well, if you're bending over backwards and jumping through hoops to help me succeed, all of a sudden, if I'm not doing it, I'm the one who's uncomfortable, not you. That's and true. All of a sudden, when you come tell me, hey, uh, you know, you you're, you're not doing it. It's not going to be a surprise to me. Uh, We've been having these conversations every day. Uh, It's becoming increasingly clear to both of us that, gee, I'm just not doing the job.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. And then... Any, any uh, choice words that you encourage managers to deliver under such circumstances?
1: Well, yeah. Then if you've been documenting this, as long as you're documenting that you're spelling out expectations, then you come back, document that my performance is not meeting those expectations, then yeah, the choice words I recommend at that point are, hey, we've got a problem, and it's not me. It's, it's you. <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
0: i'm wondering if you'd use the same intonation
1: <laughs> yeah i mean it's like when it's like when when uh, employees come to the manager and say uh, oh, you're picking on me and you're favoring Mr. Red. And what most managers want to say is I'm so glad you noticed. The reason I favor Mr. Red <laughs> is he comes in early. He stays late. He bends over backwards and jumps through hoops. He dots his eyes. He crosses his D's. The reason I favor Red is he does more work than you. You know, and if, if you're, if you're meeting with people and spelling out expectations and tracking performance in writing, it becomes much easier to be authentic and, and hold people accountable in a meaningful way.
0: Yeah. I'm right with you there. And then I think you mentioned that this has so many implications for so many different parts of of the organization. I'm, I'm thinking about just sort of like performance reviews and it's, We had a lawyer on the show previously, I believe it was Elliot Wagenheim, who who mentioned that performance reviews in in court cases for wrongful termination are never brought up by the the employer saying, as you can see, judge and or jury, this there is a long history of underperformance, but they are always brought up by the defense. Like time and time again, the performance review said met expectations. And I think that is just a, a super clear, uh, official, institutionalized way that you see this with regard to, is this management really happening on, on a, a meaningful basis, or, or is it not at all?
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. We call that false fairness, false nice guy syndrome, and avoidance of conflict. And what happens is that if you're not managing people every day, every other day, once a week, guiding, directing, supporting, and coaching them, tracking performance in writing, then what happens is the review period comes up and everyone's got to kind of figure it out and often people you know are making reference to Work that they 've never seen directly or they weren't supervising directly, or something that was ten months ago, or you know people think it's politics or who you like, and a lot of times what happens is because of all of these complications, managers uh, do not give real granular feedback, but rather everyone gets a meets expectations and so uh, the, the the it means the paper trail is not helpful it's not accurate it's not driving performance and It's a sledgehammer that has no real management impact. If anything, it has has a negative impact. So one of the beauties of guiding, directing, and supporting people on a more granular basis and providing more structured feedback on an ongoing basis is then when you do get to those performance reviews, uh, it's much easier to create them. It's much easier to differentiate between high performers and low performers and people in the middle. Uh, and there are a lot fewer surprises and it's Mm -hmm. much easier to align, uh, rewards with performance.
0: That's great. You know, I, I'm thinking about, I've, I've shared, I've looked at some people's reviews before when they've, they've opened up to me a little bit. And I guess I've, I've had a a privileged formative years in work with consulting because I I would see someone's review and it was, it was so sparse. It was like, this is, this is barely a page and, uh, and you, you get this annually. Well, well, I I, ha- I got a four page review, a single space full of specific instances of my work. You know, every three months at the end of every project in consulting, and right and that and, and I actually looked forward to the review period because it's like, oh, I am learning stuff now, and and this is enriching for me, and and part of the value proposition of of having taken this job, and 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 it's just a shame how so often it's it's just a joke, and and it does, as you mentioned, cause problems in terms of. I guess credibility, authority, trust, all that stuff being undermined because the words are are often hollow in these documents.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And by the way, you know, high performers like to keep score, high performers like to get reviews, high performers want to be evaluated because they know they're. Going the extra mile all the time. They want to get recognition and reward for it. The only people who want to be managed by false empowerment and false fairness, the only people who want to be left alone and treated like everyone else are low performers who are hiding out. So this sort of hands-off management and false fairness approach caters to low performers. What high performers want want a manager who knows who they are, knows what they're doing, is in a position to help them do more, better, faster, get unnecessary problems out of their way, get rid of low performers who are in their way, uh, and help them get recognition and rewards so they can earn more for themselves and their families.
0: Perfect. Bruce, tell me, anything else you really want to make sure to highlight before we shift gears and talk about a few of your favorite things?
1: (laughs) Uh, No, I think you've been very thorough.
0: Oh, oh, shucks! Thank you. <laughs> Put that in my review, Bruce. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Documented. Right, well, then, can you start us off with a, a favorite quote? Something that inspires you?
1: Well, uh, gee, where shall I begin? Uh, I guess uh, the title of one of my favorite books, "What Got You Here Won't Get You There," by Marshall Goldsmith. That's one of my favorite quotes.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And how about a favorite study? Well.
1: We're always doing research, so uh, we're releasing a new white paper uh, in a couple of weeks called Winning the Talent Wars, Uh, so I guess that's my current favorite study.
0: <laughs> okay. Any any choice uh, insights that you can speak to in a sentence or two? Yes,
1: uh, the supply and demand curve is totally out of whack. Uh, there is much greater demand for skilled talent, especially in the STEM fields, than there is supply, and that's going to be true for the foreseeable future. And employers who don't become more nimble in their employment practices and their management practices uh, are going to find themselves engaged in frustrating bidding wars for talent. So you either are going to commit yourself to a bidding war or you're going to do the hard work of building a winning culture.
0: Well said. Thank you. And how about a favorite book?
1: Well, gee, probably my favorite book of all time is The Last Lecture. And um, that's just an amazing book. Sid Hart is one of my favorite books. Jonathan Livingston Siegel is one of my favorite books. There's a few.
0: (laughs) That's good. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool?
1: A favorite tool? Well, uh, I guess... You know, in my own life, probably the tool I use the most are reading glasses and my iPhone. <laughs> um, and But um, I think in, in the management world, I think the tool that I recommend the most is is what we call the manager's landscape. And at the top of the page, you create a horizontal axis with six questions, who, why, what, how, where, and when. And then in the who column, you list all of your direct reports and make a few notes about them, A player, B player, C player, that sort of thing. In the why column, for each person, you say, here's why I'm managing this person. Here's my goal with this person. Here's what I'm trying to help this person get better at. In the what column, you put What's your message for this person right now, or what are your questions for this person right now? In the how column, it's what what you know it's a trial and error thing, but it's how do you talk to this person? Some people you ask questions. Some people you give orders. uh, Some people, it's a combination of both. And then where and when, where and when are you going to have these conversations and how often, of course. Uh, So that's what we call the manager's landscape. So that's a very powerful tool that, that, uh, that we recommend.
0: Very nice. And how about a favorite habit?
1: Well, I think Fitness is at the core for me. Uh, Take a walk every day and eat your vegetables. Um, But I think, in general, human beings are creatures of habit. Uh, And the only question is, uh, do you have good habits or bad habits? That's where you have to make choices. Uh, Human beings are creatures of habit. Habits feel good. And the problem is that bad habits feel just as good as good habits. The good news is that if you take the time and discipline to develop good habits, they feel just as good as bad habits and they make you stronger.
0: And tell me, is there a particular nugget, an articulation of your message that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? Well,
1: I guess the fundamentals are all you need. Own your responsibility, own your authority. It's okay to be the boss, be good at it. And
0: Bruce, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
1: Well, our website is RainmakerThinking.com, and there's a whole bunch of free resources at RainmakerThinking.com, or you can always follow me uh, on Twitter at Bruce Tolgan or LinkedIn or the normal channels.
0: And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs?
1: Well, uh, the first person you have to manage every day is yourself, and that means you've got to be honest with yourself uh, about your work habits. You've got to be honest with yourself about your personal habits. You've got to take care of yourself outside of work so that you bring your best to work. You got to get good at being on time or a little bit early. Take notes, use checklists, stay focused. The first person you have to manage every day is yourself. And uh, then the second person you have to manage every day is everybody else. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Got it. Well, Bruce, thank you. This has been fun. It's been eye-opening. It's been intriguing. You know, please keep doing your good work and, and just thanks for taking this
1: time. Likewise. Jeez, I'm honored to be on your podcast and thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for making it so easy.
0: I love how simple and yet powerful what Bruce is saying here with regard to the one-on-one meetings that you don't even really know who's performing well, who's performing not so well, And what should be done about it unless you're having that space and and you don't really have a great opportunity to give that regular feedback in a place that it can be received if you don't have that and you don't have a really great set of grounds for eliminating somebody if they need to be eliminated without having those regular exchanges and conversations and a lack of surprise when it's like hey things just aren't working out here so so simple powerful and yet overlooked a great antidote to the busyness in order to prioritize just what needs to be prioritized there. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F302. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest, Fred Kaufman, has mounds of experience from LinkedIn. And he's talking about just the power of purpose and how that can be unleashed in people and motivation and what it does for folks. Hope to catch you there. Peace.